Book Three, Chapter Six of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Six, Triumph. The dread tribunal of five judges, public prosecutor, and determined jury sat every day. Their lists went forth every evening, and were read out by the jailers of the various prisons to their prisoners. The standard jailer joke was, "'Come out and listen to the evening paper, you inside there. Charles Evremond called Darnay!' So at last began the evening paper at La Force. When a name was called, its owner stepped apart into a spot reserved for those who were announced as being thus fatally recorded. Charles Evremond, called Darnay, had reason to know the usage. He had seen hundreds pass away so. His bloated jailer, who wore spectacles to read with, glanced over them to assure himself that he had taken his place, and went through the list, making a similar short pause at each name. There were twenty-three names, but only twenty were responded to, for one of the prisoners so summoned had died in jail and been forgotten, and two had already been guillotined and forgotten. The list was read, in the vaulted chamber where Darnay had seen the associated prisoners on the night of his arrival. Every one of those had perished in the massacre. Every human creature he had since cared for and parted with had died on the scaffold. There were hurried words of farewell and kindness, but the parting was soon over. It was the incident of every day, and the society of La Force were engaged in the preparation of some games of forfeit and a little concert for that evening. They crowded to the grates and shed tears there, but twenty places in the projected entertainments had to be refilled, and the time was at best short to the lock-up hour, when the common rooms and corridors would be delivered over to the great dogs who kept watch there through the night. The prisoners were far from insensible or unfeeling. Their ways arose out of the condition of the time. Similarly, though with a subtle difference, a species of fervour or intoxication, known, without doubt, to have led some persons to brave the guillotine unnecessarily, and to die by it, was not mere boastfulness, but a wild infection of the wildly shaken public mind. In seasons of pestilence, some of us will have a secret attraction to the disease, a terrible passing inclination to die of it. And all of us have like wonders hidden in our breasts, only needing circumstances to evoke them. The passage to the conciergerie was short and dark. The night in its vermin-haunted cells was long and cold. Next day, fifteen prisoners were put to the bar before Charles Darnay's name was called. All the fifteen were condemned, and the trials of the whole occupied an hour and a half. Charles Evremond, called Darnay, was at length arraigned. His judges sat upon the bench in feathered hats, but the rough red cap and tricoloured cockade was the headdress otherwise prevailing.
looking at the jury and the turbulent audience he might have thought that the usual order of things was reversed and that the felons were trying the honest men the lowest cruelest and worst populace of a city never without its quantity of low cruel and bad were the directing spirits of the scene noisily commenting applauding disapproving anticipating and precipitating the result without a check of the men the greater part were armed in various ways of the women some wore knives some daggers some ate and drank as they looked on many knitted among these last was one with a spare piece of knitting under her arm as she worked she was in a front row by the side of a man whom he had never seen since his arrival at the barrier but whom he directly remembered as defarge he noticed that she once or twice whispered in his ear and that she seemed to be his wife but what he most noticed in the two figures was that although they were posted as close to himself as they could be they never looked towards him they seemed to be waiting for something with a dogged determination and they looked at the jury but at nothing else under the president sat dr manette in his usual quiet dress as well as the prisoner could see he and mr lorry were the only men there unconnected with the tribunal who wore their usual clothes and had not assumed the coarse garb of the carmagnol charles evremond called darnay was accused by the public prosecutor as an emigrant whose life was forfeit to the republic under the decree which banished all emigrants on pain of death it was nothing that the decree bore date since his return to france there he was and there was the decree he had been taken in france and his head was demanded take off his head cried the audience an enemy to the republic the president rang his bell to silence those cries, and asked the prisoner whether it was not true that he had lived many years in England. Undoubtedly it was. Was he not an emigrant then? What did he call himself? Not an emigrant, he hoped, within the sense and spirit of the law. Why not, the president desired to know? because he had voluntarily relinquished a title that was distasteful to him and a station that was distasteful to him and had left his country he submitted before the word emigrant in the present acceptation by the tribunal was in use to live by his own industry in england rather than on the industry of the overladen people of france what proof had he of this he handed in the names of two witnesses theophile gabelle and alexandre manette but he had married in england the president reminded him true but not an englishwoman a citizeness of france yes by birth her name and family lucy manette only daughter of dr manette the good physician who sits there this answer had a happy effect upon the audience cries in exaltation of the well-known good physician rent the hall so capriciously were the people moved that tears immediately rolled down several ferocious countenances which had been glaring at the prisoner a moment before as if with impatience to pluck him out into the streets and kill him 
on these few steps of his dangerous way charles darnay had set his foot according to dr manette's reiterated instructions the same cautious counsel directed every step that lay before him and had prepared every inch of his road the president asked why had he returned to france when he did and not sooner he had not returned sooner he replied simply because he had no means of living in france save those he had resigned whereas in england he lived by giving instruction in the french language and literature he had returned when he did on the pressing and written entreaty of a french citizen who represented that his life was endangered by his absence he had come back to save a citizen's life and to bear his testimony at whatever personal hazard to the truth was that criminal in the eyes of the republic the populace cried enthusiastically no and the president rang his bell to quiet them which it did not for they continued to cry no until they left off of their own will the president required the name of that citizen the accused explained that the citizen was his first witness he also referred with confidence to the citizen's letter which had been taken from him at the barrier but which he did not doubt would be found among the papers then before the president the doctor had taken care that it should be there had assured him that it would be there and at this stage of the proceedings it was produced and read citizen gabelle was called to confirm it and did so citizen gabelle hinted with infinite delicacy and politeness that in the pressure of business imposed on the tribunal by the multitude of enemies of the republic with which it had to deal he had been slightly overlooked in his prison of the abbe in fact had rather passed out of the tribunal's patriotic remembrance until three days ago when he had been summoned before it and had been set at liberty on the jurors declaring themselves satisfied that the accusation against him was answered as to himself by the surrender of the citizen evremond called darnay dr manette was next questioned his high personal popularity and the clearness of his answers made a great impression but as he proceeded as he showed that the accused was his first friend on his release from his long imprisonment that the accused had remained in england always faithful and devoted to his daughter and himself in their exile that so far from being in favour with the aristocrat government there he had actually been tried for his life by it as the foe of england and friend of the united states as he brought these circumstances into view with the greatest discretion and with the straightforward force of truth and earnestness the jury and the populace became one at last when he appealed by name to monsieur lorry an english gentleman then and there present who like himself had been a witness on that english trial and could corroborate his account of it the jury declared that they had heard enough and that they were ready with their votes if the president were content to receive them at every vote the jurymen voted aloud and individually the populace set up a shout of applause all the voices were in the prisoner's favour and the president declared him free 
then began one of those extraordinary scenes with which the populace sometimes gratified their fickleness or their better impulses towards generosity and mercy or which they regarded as some set-off against their swollen account of cruel rage no man can decide now to which of these motives such extraordinary scenes were referable it is probable to a blending of all the three with the second predominating no sooner was the acquittal pronounced than tears were shed as freely as blood at another time and such fraternal embraces were bestowed upon the prisoner by as many of both sexes as could rush at him that after his long and unwholesome confinement he was in danger of fainting from exhaustion none the less because he knew very well that the very same people carried by another current would have rushed at him with the very same intensity to rend him to pieces and strew him over the streets his removal to make way for other accused persons who were to be tried rescued him from these caresses for the moment five were to be tried together next as enemies of the republic forasmuch as they had not assisted it by word or deed so quick was the tribunal to compensate itself and the nation for a chance lost that these five came down to him before he left the place condemned to die within twenty-four hours the first of them told him so with the customary prison sign of death a raised finger and they all added in words long live the republic the five had had it is true no audience to lengthen their proceedings for when he and dr manette emerged from the gate there was a great crowd about it in which there seemed to be every face he had seen in court except two for which he looked in vain on his coming out the concourse made at him anew weeping embracing and shouting all by turns and all together until the very tide of the river on the bank of which the mad scene was acted seemed to run mad like the people on the shore they put him into a great chair they had among them and which they had taken either out of the court itself or one of its rooms or passages over the chair they had thrown a red flag and to the back of it they had bound a pike with a red cap on its top in this car of triumph not even the doctor's entreaties could prevent his being carried to his home on men's shoulders with a confused sea of red caps heaving about him and casting up to sight from the stormy deep such wrecks of faces that he more than once misdoubted his mind being in confusion and that he was in the tumbril on his way to the guillotine in wild dream-like procession embracing whom they met and pointing him out they carried him on reddening the snowy streets with the prevailing republican colour in winding and tramping through them as they had reddened them below the snow with a deeper dye they carried him thus into the courtyard of the building where he lived her father had gone on before to prepare her and when her husband stood upon his feet she dropped insensible in his arms as he held her to his heart 
and turned her beautiful head between his face and the brawling crowd, so that his tears and her lips might come together unseen, a few of the people fell to dancing. Instantly all the rest fell to dancing, and the courtyard overflowed with a carmignol. Then they elevated into the vacant chair a young woman from the crowd, to be carried as the goddess of liberty, and then, swelling and overflowing out into the adjacent streets, and along the river's bank, and over the bridge, the Carmignol absorbed them every one, and whirled them away. After grasping the doctor's hand, as he stood victorious and proud before him, after grasping the hand of Mr. Lorry, who came panting in breathless from his struggle against the water-spout of the Carmignol, after kissing little Lucy, who was lifted up to clasp her arms around his neck, and after embracing the ever-zealous and faithful Pross, who lifted her, he took his wife in his arms and carried her up to their rooms. "'Lucy, my own, I am safe. "'Oh, dearest Charles, let me thank God for this on my knees "'as I have prayed to him.' "'They all reverently bowed their heads and hearts. "'When she was again in his arms, he said to her, "'And now speak to your father, dearest. "'No other man in all this France could have done "'what he has done for me.' She laid her head upon her father's breast, as she had laid his poor head on her own breast long, long ago. He was happy in the return he had made her. He was recompensed for his suffering. He was proud of his strength. "'You must not be weak, my darling,' he remonstrated. "'Don't tremble so. I have saved him.'" End of Book 3, Chapter 6 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yornguy.com Book 3, Chapter 7 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 7. A Knock at the Door. I have saved him. It was not another of the dreams in which he had often come back. He was really there, and yet his wife trembled, and a vague but heavy fear was upon her. All the air round was so thick and dark, the people were so passionately revengeful and fitful, the innocent were so constantly put to death on vague suspicion and black malice, it was so impossible to forget that many as blameless as her husband, and as dear to others as he was to her, every day shared the fate from which she had been clutched, that her heart could not be as lightened of its load as she felt it ought to be. The shadows of the wintry afternoon were beginning to fall, and even now the dreadful carts were rolling through the streets. Her mind pursued them, looking for him among the condemned, and then she clung closer to his real presence and trembled more. Her father, cheering her, showed a compassionate superiority to this woman's weakness, which was wonderful to see. No garret, no shoemaking, no one hundred and five North Tower now. He had accomplished the task he had set himself. His promise was redeemed. He had saved Charles. Let them all lean upon him. 
their housekeeping was of a very frugal kind not only because that was the safest way of life involving the least offence to the people but because they were not rich and charles throughout his imprisonment had had to pay heavily for his bad food and for his guard and towards the living of the poorer prisoners partly on this account and partly to avoid a domestic spy they kept no servant the citizen and citizeness who acted as porters at the courtyard gate rendered them occasional service and jerry almost wholly transferred to them by mr lorry had become their daily retainer and had his bed there every night it was an ordinance of the republic one and indivisible of liberty equality fraternity or death that on the door or door-post of every house the name of every inmate must be legibly inscribed in letters of a certain size at a certain convenient height from the ground mr jerry cruncher's name therefore duly embellished the door-post down below and as the afternoon shadows deepened the owner of that name himself appeared from overlooking a painter whom dr manette had employed to add to the list the name of charles evremond called darnay in the universal fear and distrust that darkened the time all the usual harmless ways of life were changed in the doctor's little household as in very many others the articles of daily consumption that were wanted were purchased every evening in small quantities and various small shops to avoid attracting notice and to give as little occasion as possible for talk and envy was the general desire for some months past, Miss Pross and Mr. Cruncher had discharged the office of purveyors, the former carrying the money, the latter the basket. Every afternoon at about the time when the public lamps were lighted, they fared forth on this duty, and made and brought home such purchases as were needful although miss pross through her long association with a french family might have known as much of their language as of her own if she had had a mind she had no mind in that direction consequently she knew no more of that nonsense as she was pleased to call it than mr cruncher did so her manner of marketing was to plump a noun substantive at the head of a shopkeeper without any introduction in the nature of an article and if it happened not to be the name of the thing she wanted to look round for that thing lay hold of it and hold on by it until the bargain was concluded she always made a bargain for it by holding up as a statement of its just price one finger less than the merchant held up whatever his number might be now mr cruncher said miss pross whose eyes were red with felicity if you are ready i am jerry hoarsely professed himself at miss pross's service he had worn all his rust off long ago but nothing would file his spiky head down there's all manner of things wanted said miss pross and we shall have a precious time of it we want wine among the rest nice toasts these redheads will be drinking wherever we buy it it will be much the same to your knowledge miss i should think retorted jerry whether they drink your health or the old uns who's he said miss pross mr cruncher with some diffidence explained himself as meaning old nicks 
Ha, said Miss Pross, it doesn't need an interpreter to explain the meaning of these creatures. They have but one, and it's midnight murder and mischief. Hush, dear, pray, pray, be cautious, cried Lucy. Yes, 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 I'll be cautious, said Miss Pross, but I may say among ourselves that I do hope there will be no oniony and tobacco-y smotherings in the form of embracings all round going on in the streets. Now, Ladybird, never you stir from that fire till I come back. Take care of the dear husband you have recovered, and don't move your pretty head from his shoulder as you have it now till you see me again." may i ask a question dr manette before i go i think you may take that liberty the doctor answered smiling for gracious sake don't talk about liberty we have quite enough of that said miss pross hush dear again lucy remonstrated well my sweet said miss pross nodding her head emphatically the short and the long of it is that i am a subject of his most gracious majesty king george the third miss pross curtsied at the name and as such my maxim is confound their politics frustrate their knavish tricks on him our hopes we fix god save the king mr cruncher in an excess of loyalty growlingly repeated the words after miss pross like somebody at church i am glad you have so much of the englishman in you though i wish you had never taken that cold in your voice said miss pross approvingly but a question dr manette is there it was the good creature's way to affect to make light of anything that was a great anxiety with them all and to come at it in this chance manner is there any prospect yet of our getting out of this place i fear not yet it would be dangerous for charles yet "'Hey, ho-hum!' said Miss Pross, cheerfully repressing a sigh as she glanced at her darling's golden hair in the light of the fire. "'Then we must have patience and wait. That's all. We must hold up our heads and fight low, as my brother Solomon used to say. Now, Mr. Cruncher, don't you move, Ladybird?' They went out, leaving Lucy and her husband, her father, and the child by a bright fire." mr lorry was expected back presently from the banking-house miss pross had lighted the lamp but had put it aside in a corner that they might enjoy the firelight undisturbed little lucy sat by her grandfather with her hands clasped through his arm and he in a tone not rising much above a whisper began to tell her a story of a great and powerful fairy who had opened a prison wall and let out a captive who had once done the fairy a service all was subdued and quiet and lucy was more at ease than she had been what is that she cried all at once my dear said her father stopping in his story and laying his hand on hers command yourself what a disordered state you are in the least thing nothing startles you you your father's daughter i thought my father said lucy excusing herself with a pale face and in a faltering voice that i heard strange feet upon the stairs my love the staircase is as still as death as he said the word a blow was struck upon the door oh father father what can this be hide child save him 
"'My child,' said the doctor, rising, and laying his hand upon her shoulder, "'I have saved him. What weakness is this, my dear? Let me go to the door.' He took the lamp in his hand, crossed the two intervening outer rooms, and opened it. A rude clattering of feet over the floor, and four rough men in red caps, armed with sabres and pistols, entered the room. "'The citizen Evremond, called Darnay,' said the first. "'Who seeks him?' answered Darnay. "'I seek him. We seek him. I know you, Evremond. I saw you before the tribunal to-day. You are again the prisoner of the Republic.' The four surrounded him, where he stood with his wife and child clinging to him. "'Tell me how and why am I again a prisoner?' It is enough that you return straight to the conciergerie, and will know to-morrow. You are summoned for to-morrow. Dr. Manette, whom this visitation had so turned into stone, that he stood with the lamp in his hand, as if bewoe a statue made to hold it, moved after these words were spoken, put the lamp down, and, confronting the speaker, and taking him not ungently by the loose front of his red woollen shirt, said, "'You know him, you have said. Do you know me?' "'Yes, I know you, citizen doctor.' "'We all know you, citizen doctor,' said the other three. He looked abstractedly from one to another, and said in a lower voice, after a pause, "'Will you answer his question to me, then? How does this happen?' "'Citizen doctor,' said the first, reluctantly, "'he has been denounced to the section of Saint-Antoine. This citizen,' pointing out the second who had entered, "'is from Saint-Antoine.' the citizen here indicated nodded his head and added he is accused by saint antoine of what asked the doctor citizen doctor said the first with his former reluctance ask no more if the republic demands sacrifices from you without doubt you as a good patriot will be happy to make them the republic goes before all the people is supreme evremont we are pressed one word the doctor entreated will you tell me who denounced him it is against rule answered the first but you can ask him of saint antoine here the doctor turned his eyes upon that man who moved uneasily on his feet rubbed his beard a little and at length said well truly it is against rule but he is denounced and gravely by the citizen and citizeness defarge and by one other what other? Do you ask, citizen doctor? Yes. Then, said he of Saint-Antoine, with a strange look, you will be answered to-morrow. Now I am dumb. End of Book 3, Chapter 7 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yongai.com Book Three, Chapter Eight of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Eight: A Hand at Cards. Happily unconscious of the new calamity at home, Miss Pross threaded her way along the narrow streets and crossed the river by the bridge of the Pont Neuf reckoning in her mind the number of indispensable purchases she had to make. Mr. Cruncher, with the basket, walked at her right. 
They both looked to the right and to the left, into most of the shops they passed, had a wary eye for all gregarious assemblages of people, and turned out of their road to avoid any very excited group of talkers. It was a raw evening, and the misty river, blurred to the eye with blazing lights and to the ear with harsh noises, showed where the barges were stationed in which the smiths worked making guns for the army of the Republic. Woe to the man who played tricks with that army, or got undeserved promotion in it. Better for him that his beard had never grown, for the national razor shaved him close." Having purchased a few small articles of grocery and a measure of oil for the lamp, Miss Pross bethought herself of the wine they wanted. After peeping into several wine-shops, she stopped at the sign of the good Republican Brutus of Antiquity, not far from the National Palace, once and twice the Tuileries, where the aspect of things rather took her fancy. It had a quieter look than any other place of the same description they had passed, and, though red with patriotic caps, was not so red as the rest. Sounding Mr. Cruncher, and finding him of her opinion, Miss Pross resorted to the good Republican Brutus of Antiquity, attended by her cavalier. Slightly observant of the smoky lights, of the people, pipe in mouth, playing with limp cards and yellow dominoes, of the one bare-breasted, bare-armed, soot-begrimed workman reading a journal aloud, and of the others listening to him, of the weapons worn or laid aside to be resumed, of the two or three customers fallen forward asleep, who in the popular, high-shouldered, shaggy black Spencer looked, in that attitude, like slumbering bears or dogs. The two outlandish customers approached the counter, and showed what they wanted. As their wine was measuring out, a man parted from another man in a corner, and rose to depart. In going he had to face Miss Pross. No sooner did he face her than Miss Pross uttered a scream, and clapped her hands. In a moment the whole company were on their feet. That somebody was assassinated by somebody, vindicating a difference of opinion, was the likeliest occurrence. Everybody looked to see somebody fall, but only saw a man and a woman standing staring at each other, the man with all the outward aspect of a Frenchman and a thorough Republican, the woman evidently English. What was said in this disappointing anticlimax by the disciples of the good Republican Brutus of Antiquity, except that it was something very voluble and loud, would have been as so much Hebrew or Chaldean to Miss Pross and her protector, though they had been all ears but they had no ears for anything in their surprise, for it must be recorded that not only was Miss Pross lost in amazement and agitation, but Mr. Cruncher, though it seemed on his own separate and individual account, was in a state of the greatest wonder. "'What is the matter?' said the man who had caused Miss Pross to scream, speaking in a vexed, abrupt voice, though in a low tone, and in English." "'Oh, Solomon! Dear Solomon!' cried Miss Pross, clapping her hands again. "'After not setting eyes upon you or hearing of you for so long a time, do I find you here?' "'Don't call me Solomon. Do you want to be the death of me?' asked the man in a furtive, frightened way. "'Brother! Brother!' 
cried Miss Pross, bursting into tears. "'Have I ever been so hard with you that you ask me such a cruel question?' "'Then hold your meddlesome tongue,' said Solomon, "'and come out if you want to speak to me. Pay for your wine and come out. Who's this man?' Miss Pross, shaking her loving and dejected head at her by no means affectionate brother, said through her tears, "'Mr. Cruncher!' "'Let him come out, too,' said Solomon. "'Does he think me a ghost?' Apparently Mr. Cruncher did, to judge from his looks. He said not a word, however, and Miss Pross, exploring the depths of her reticule through her tears with great difficulty, paid for her wine. As she did so, Solomon turned to the followers of the good Republican Brutus of antiquity, and offered a few words of explanation in the French language, which caused them all to relapse into their former places and pursuits. "'Now,' said Solomon, stopping at the dark street corner, "'what do you want?' "'How dreadfully unkind in a brother nothing has ever turned my love away from,' cried Miss Pross, "'to give me such a greeting, and show me no affection.' "'There, confound it, there,' said Solomon, making a dab at Miss Pross's lips with his own. "'Now are you content?' Miss Pross only shook her head, and wept in silence." "'If you expect me to be surprised,' said her brother Solomon, "'I am not surprised. I knew you were here. I know of most people who are here. If you really don't want to endanger my existence, which I half believe you do, go your ways as soon as possible, and let me go mine. I am busy. I am an official.' "'My English brother Solomon,' mourned Miss Pross, casting up her tear-fraught eyes, that had the makings in him of one of the best and greatest of men in his native country, an official among foreigners, and such foreigners, I would almost sooner have seen the dear boy lying in his— I said so, cried her brother, interrupting. I knew it. You want to be the death of me. I shall be rendered suspected by my own sister, just as I am getting on. "'The gracious and merciful heavens forbid!' cried Miss Pross. "'Far rather would I never see you again, dear Solomon, "'though I have ever loved you truly, and ever shall. "'Say but one affectionate word to me, "'and tell me there is nothing angry or estranged between us, "'and I will detain you no longer.' "'Good Miss Pross, as if the estrangement between them had come of any culpability of hers, as if Mr. Lorry had not known it for a fact, years ago, in the quiet corner in Soho, that this precious brother had spent her money and left her. He was saying the affectionate word, however, with a far more grudging condescension and patronage than he could have shown if their relative merits and positions had been reversed, which is invariably the case all the world over. When Mr. Cruncher, touching him on the shoulder, hoarsely and unexpectedly interposed with the following singular question. "'I say, might I ask the favour as to whether your name is John Solomon or Solomon John?' The official turned towards him with sudden distrust. He had not previously uttered a word. "'Come,' said Mr. Cruncher, "'speak out, you know.' 
which, by the way, was more than he could do himself. "'John Solomon, or Solomon John? She calls you Solomon, and she must know, being your sister, and I know you're John, you know. Which of the two goes first, and regarding that name of Pross, likewise? That weren't your name over the water.' "'What do you mean?' "'Well, I don't know all I mean, for I can't call to mind what your name was over the water.' "'No?' "'No, but I'll swear it was a name of two syllables.' "'Indeed?' "'Yes. T'other ones was one syllable. I know you. You was a spy, witness at the Bailey.' "'What in the name of the father of lies, own father to yourself, was you called at that time?' Barsad, said another voice, striking in. That's the name for a thousand pound, cried Jerry. The speaker who struck in was Sidney Carton. He had his hands behind him under the skirts of his riding coat, and he stood at Mr. Cruncher's elbow as negligently as he might have stood at the old bailey itself. Don't be alarmed, my dear Miss Pross. I arrived at Mr. Lorry's, to his surprise, yesterday evening. We agreed that I would not present myself elsewhere until all was well, or unless I could be useful. I present myself here to beg a little talk with your brother. I wish you had a better employed brother than Mr. Barsad. I wish for your sake Mr. Barsad was not a sheep of the prisons." Sheep was a cant word of the time for a spy. Under the jailers, the spy, who was pale, turned paler, and asked him how he dared. "'I'll tell you,' said Sidney. "'I lighted on you, Mr. Barsad, coming out of the prison of the conciergerie, while I was contemplating the walls an hour or more ago. You have a face to be remembered, and I remember faces well, made curious by seeing you in that connection, and having a reason, to which you are no stranger, for associating you with the misfortunes of a friend now very unfortunate, I walked in your direction. I walked into the wine-shop here, close after you, and sat near you. I had no difficulty in deducing from your unreserved conversation, and the rumour openly going about among your admirers, the nature of your calling. And, gradually, what I had done at random seemed to shape itself into a purpose, Mr. Barsad. What purpose? the spy asked. It would be troublesome, and might be dangerous, to explain in the street. Could you favour me, in confidence, with some minutes of your company, at the office of Telson's Bank, for instance? Under a threat? Oh, did I say that? Then why would I go there? Really, Mr. Barsad, I can't say if you can't. Do you mean that you won't say, sir? the spy irresolutely asked. You apprehend me very clearly, Mr. Barsad. I won't. Carton's negligent recklessness of manner came powerfully in aid of his quickness and skill in such a business as he had in his secret mind, and with such a man as he had to do with. His practised eye saw it and made the most of it. "'Now, I told you so,' said the spy, casting a reproachful look at his sister. "'If any trouble comes of this, it's your doing.' "'Come, come, Mr. Barsad,' explained Sidney. "'Don't be ungrateful, but for my great respect for your sister, I might not have led up so pleasantly to a little proposal that I wish to make for our mutual satisfaction. Do you go with me to the bank?' "'I'll hear what you have got to say. Yes, I'll go with you.' 
I propose that we first conduct your sister safely to the corner of her own street. Let me take your arm, Miss Pross. This is not a good city at this time for you to be out in unprotected, and as your escort knows Mr. Barsad, I will invite him to Mr. Lorry's with us. Are we ready? Come, then. Miss Pross recalled soon afterwards, and to the end of her life remembered, that as she pressed her hands on Sidney's arm, and looked up in his face, imploring him to do no hurt to Solomon, there was a braced purpose in the arm, and a kind of inspiration in the eyes, which not only contradicted his light manner, but changed and raised the man. She was too much occupied then with fears for the brother, who so little deserved her affection, and with Sidney's friendly reassurances adequately to heed what she observed they left her at the corner of the street and carton led the way to mr lorry's which was within a few minutes walk john barsad or solomon pross walked at his side mr lorry had just finished his dinner and was sitting before a cheery little log or two of fire perhaps looking into their blaze for the picture of that younger elderly gentleman from tellson's who had looked into the red coals at the royal george at dover now a good many years ago he turned his head as they entered and showed the surprise with which he saw a stranger miss pross's brother sir said sydney mr barsad barsad repeated the old gentleman barsad i have an association with the name and with the face i told you you had a remarkable face mr barsad observed carton coolly pray sit down as he took a chair himself he supplied the link that mr lorry wanted by saying to him with a frown witness at the trial Mr. Lorry immediately remembered, and regarded his new visitor with an undisguised look of abhorrence. Mr. Barsad has been recognized by Miss Pross as the affectionate brother you have heard of, said Sidney, and has acknowledged the relationship. I pass to worse news. Darnay has been arrested again. Struck with consternation, the old gentleman exclaimed, "'What do you tell me? I left him safe and free within these two hours, and am about to return to him.' "'Arrested for all that. When was it done, Mr. Barsad?' "'Just now, if at all.' "'Mr. Barsad is the best authority possible, sir,' said Sidney, "'and I have it from Mr. Barsad's communication to a friend and brother sheep over a bottle of wine that the arrest has taken place.' he left the messengers at the gate and saw them admitted by the porter there is no earthly doubt that he is retaken mr lorry's business eye read in the speaker's face that it was loss of time to dwell upon the point confused but sensible that something might depend on his presence of mind he commanded himself and was silently attentive now i trust said sidney to him that the name and influence of dr manette may stand him in as good stead to-morrow you said he would be before the tribunal again to-morrow mr barsad yes i believe so in as good stead to-morrow as to-day but it may not be so i own to you i am shaken mr lorry by dr manette's not having had the power to prevent this arrest he may not have known of it beforehand said mr lorry but that very circumstance would be alarming when we remember how identified he is with his son-in-law 
"'That's true,' Mr. Lorry acknowledged, with his troubled hand at his chin, and his troubled eyes on Carton. "'In short,' said Sidney, "'this is a desperate time, when desperate games are played for desperate stakes. Let the doctor play the winning game, I will play the losing one. No man's life here is worth purchase. Any one carried home by the people to-day may be condemned to-morrow.' Now, the stake I have resolved to play for, in case of the worst, is a friend in the conciergerie, and the friend I purpose to myself to win is Mr. Barsad. You need have good cards, sir, said the spy. I'll run them over. I'll see what I hold. Mr. Lorry, you know what a brute I am. I wish you'd give me a little brandy. It was put before him, and he drank off a glassful, drank off another glassful, pushed the bottle thoughtfully away. "'Mr. Barsat,' he went on, in the tone of one who really was looking over a hand at cards, "'sheep of the prisons, emissary of republican committees, now turnkey, now prisoner, always spy and secret informer, so much the more valuable here for being English, that an Englishman is less open to suspicion of subornation in these characters than a Frenchman, represents himself to his employers under a false name. That's a very good card.' mr barsad now in the employ of the republican french government was formerly in the employ of the aristocratic english government the enemy of france and freedom that's an excellent card inference clear as day in this region of suspicion that mr barsad still in the pay of the aristocratic english government is the spy of pitt the treacherous foe of the republic crouching in its bosom the english traitor an agent of all mischief so much spoken of and so difficult to find that's a card not to be beaten have you followed my hand mr barsad not to understand your play returned the spy somewhat uneasily i play my ace denunciation of mr barsad to the nearest section committee look over your hand mr barsad and see what you have don't hurry he drew the bottle near poured out another glassful of brandy and drank it off he saw that the spy was fearful of his drinking himself into a fit state for the immediate denunciation of him seeing it he poured out and drank another glassful look over your hand carefully mr barsad take time it was a poorer hand than he suspected mr barsad saw losing cards in it that sidney carton knew nothing of thrown out of his honourable employment in england through too much unsuccessful hard swearing there not because he was not wanted there our english reasons for vaunting our superiority to secrecy and spies are of very modern date he knew that he had crossed the channel and accepted service in france first as a tempter and an eavesdropper among his own countrymen there gradually as a tempter and an eavesdropper among the natives he knew that under the overthrown government he had been a spy upon saint antoine and defarge's wine-shop had received from the watchful police such heads of information concerning dr manette's imprisonment release and history as should serve him for an introduction to familiar conversation with the defarges and tried them on madame defarge and had broken down with them signally 
he always remembered with fear and trembling that that terrible woman had knitted when he talked with her and had looked ominously at him as her fingers moved he had since seen her in the section of saint antoine over and over again produce her knitted registers and denounce people whose lives the guillotine then surely swallowed up he knew as every one employed as he was did that he was never safe that flight was impossible that he was tied fast under the shadow of the axe and that in spite of his utmost tergiversation and treachery in furtherance of the reigning terror a word might bring it down upon him once denounced and on such grave grounds as had just now been suggested to his mind he foresaw that the dreadful woman of whose unrelenting character he had seen many proofs would produce against him that fatal register and would quash his last chance of life besides that all secret men are men soon terrified here was surely cards enough of one black suit to justify the holder in growing rather livid as he turned them over you scarcely seem to like your hand said sidney with the greatest composure do you play i think sir said the spy in the meanest manner as he turned to mr lorry i may appeal to a gentleman of your years and benevolence to put it to this other gentleman so much your junior whether he can under any circumstances reconcile it to his station to play that ace of which he has spoken i admit that i am a spy and that it is considered a discreditable station though it must be filled by somebody but this gentleman is no spy and why should he so demean himself as to make himself one i play my ace mr barsad said carton taking the answer on himself and looking at his watch without any scruple in a very few minutes i should have hoped gentlemen both said the spy always striving to hook mr lorry into the discussion that your respect for my sister i could not better testify my respect for your sister than by finally relieving her of her brother said sidney carton you think not sir i have thoroughly made up my mind about it the smooth manner of the spy curiously in dissonance with his ostentatiously rough dress and probably with his usual demeanour received such a check from the inscrutability of carton who was a mystery to wiser and honester men than he that it faltered here and failed him while he was at a loss carton said resuming his former air of contemplating cards and indeed now i think again i have a strong impression that i have another good card here not yet enumerated that friend and fellow sheep who spoke of himself as pasturing in the country prisons who was he french you don't know him said the spy quickly french eh repeated carton musing and not appearing to notice him at all though he echoed his word well he may be is i assure you said the spy though it's not important though it's not important repeated carton in the same mechanical way though it's not important no it's not important no yet i know the face i think not i'm sure not it can't be said the spy it can't be muttered sidney carton retrospectively and idling his glass which fortunately was a small one again can't be spoke good french yet like a foreigner i thought 
"'Provincial,' said the spy. "'No, foreign!' cried Carton, striking his open hand on the table, as a light broke clearly on his mind. "'Cly, disguised, but the same man. We had that man before us at the old Bailey.' "'Now, there you are hasty, sir,' said Barsad, with a smile that gave his aquiline nose an extra inclination to one side. "'There you really give me an advantage over you. Cly, who I will unreservedly admit at this distance of time, was a partner of mine, has been dead several years. I attended him in his last illness. He was buried in London, at the church of St. Pancras in the fields. His unpopularity with the blackguard multitude at the moment prevented my following his remains, but I helped to lay him in his coffin. Here Mr. Lorry became aware, from where he sat, of a most remarkable goblin shadow on the wall. Tracing it to its source, he discovered it to be caused by the sudden, extraordinary rising and stiffening of all the risen and stiff hair on Mr. Cruncher's head. "'Let us be reasonable,' said the spy, "'and let us be fair, to show you how mistaken you are, and what an unfounded assumption yours is, I will lay before you a certificate of Cly's burial, which I happen to have carried in my pocket-book.' With a hurried hand he produced and opened it. "'Ever since. There it is. Oh, look at it, look at it. You may take it in your hand. It's no forgery.' Here Mr. Lorry perceived the reflection on the wall to elongate, and Mr. Cruncher rose and stepped forward. His hair could not have been more violently on end if it had been that moment dressed by the cow with the crumpled horn in the house that Jack built. Unseen by the spy, Mr. Cruncher stood at his side and touched him on the shoulder like a ghostly bailiff. "'That there Roger Cly, master,' said Mr. Cruncher, with a taciturn and iron-bound visage. "'So you put him in his coffin?' "'I did. Who took him out of it?' Barstad leaned back in his chair and stammered, "'What do you mean?' "'I mean,' said Mr. Cruncher, "'that he weren't never in it. No, not he. I'll have me head took off if he was ever in it.' The spy looked round at the two gentlemen. They both looked in unspeakable astonishment at Jerry. "'I tell you,' said Jerry, "'that you buried paving-stones and earth in that there coffin. "'Don't go and tell me that you buried Cly. "'It was a taking. "'Me and two more knows it.' "'How do you know it?' "'What's that to you, ecod?' growled Mr. Cruncher. "'It's you I've got a old grudge against, is it, "'with your shameful impositions upon tradesmen? "'I'd catch hold of your throat and choke you for half a guinea!' Sidney Carton, who with Mr. Lorry had been lost in amazement at this turn of the business, here requested Mr. Cruncher to moderate and explain himself. "'At another time, sir,' he returned evasively. "'The present time is ill-convenient for explaining. "'What I stand to is that he knows well what that there cly "'was never in that there coffin. "'Let him say he was in so much as a word of one syllable, "'and I'll either catch hold of his throat and choke him for half a guinea.' "'Mr. Cruncher dwelt upon this as quite a liberal offer. "'Or I'll out and announce him.' 
"'Humph! I see one thing,' said Carton. "'I hold another card, Mr. Barsad. "'Impossible here in raging Paris, "'with suspicion filling the air, "'for you to outlive denunciation "'when you are in communication "'with another aristocratic spy "'of the same antecedents as yourself, "'who, moreover, has the mystery about him "'of having feigned death and come to life again. "'A plot in the prisons "'of the foreigner against the Republic, "'a strong card a certain guillotine card do you play no returned the spy i throw up i confess that we were so unpopular with the outrageous mob that i only got away from england at the risk of being ducked to death and that cly was so ferreted up and down that he never would have got away at all but for that sham though how this man knows it was a sham is a wonder of wonders to me never you trouble your head about this man retorted the contentious mr cruncher you will have trouble enough with giving your attention to that gentleman and look here once more mr cruncher could not be restrained from making rather an ostentatious parade of his liberality i'd catch hold of your throat and choke you for half a guinea the sheep of the prisons turned from him to Sidney Carton, and said, with more decision, "'It has come to a point. I go on duty soon, and can't overstay my time. You told me you had a proposal. What is it? Now, it is of no use asking too much of me. Ask me to do anything in my office, putting my head in great extra danger, and I had better trust my life to the chances of a refusal than the chances of consent. In short, I should make that choice. You talk of desperation. We are all desperate here. Remember, I may denounce you if I think proper, and I can swear my way through stone walls, and so can others. Now, what do you want with me? Not very much. You are a turnkey at the conciergerie? I tell you once for all, there is no such thing as an escape possible, said the spy firmly. Why need you tell me what I have not asked? You are a turnkey at the conciergerie? I am sometimes. You can be when you choose? I can pass in and out when I choose. Sidney Carton filled another glass with brandy, poured it slowly out upon the hearth, and watched it as it dropped. It being all spent, he said, rising, so far we have spoken before these two because it was as well that the merits of the card should not rest solely between you and me come into the dark room here and let us have one final word alone end of book three chapter eight recording by paul adams www.yawnguy.com Book three, chapter nine of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter nine, The Game Made. While Sidney Carton and the sheep of the prisons were in the adjoining dark room, speaking so low that not a sound was heard, Mr. Lorry looked at Jerry in considerable doubt and mistrust. That honest tradesman's manner of receiving the look did not inspire confidence. He changed the leg on which he rested as often as if he had fifty of those limbs and were trying them all. He examined his finger-nails with a very questionable closeness of attention, and whenever Mr. 
Mr. Lorry's eye caught his, he was taken with that peculiar kind of short cough requiring the hollow of a hand before it, which is seldom, if ever, known to be an infirmity attendant on perfect openness of character. "'Jerry,' said Mr. Lorry, "'come here.' Mr. Cruncher came forward sideways with one of his shoulders in advance of him. "'What have you been besides a messenger?' After some cogitation accompanied with an intent look at his patron, Mr. Cruncher conceived the luminous idea of replying, "'Agricultural character!' "'My mind misgives me much,' said Mr. Lorry, angrily shaking a forefinger at him, "'that you have used the respectable and great house of Telson's as a blind, and that you have had an unlawful occupation of an infamous description.' if you have don't expect me to befriend you when you get back to england if you have don't expect me to keep your secret tellson shall not be imposed upon i hope sir pleaded the abashed mr cruncher that a gentleman like yourself what i've had the honour of odd jobbing till i'm grey at it would think twice about arming of me even if it was so i don't say it is but even if it was and which it is to be took into account that if it was it wouldn't even then be all on one side there'd be two sides to it there might be medical doctors at the present hour a picking up their guineas where an honest tradesman don't pick up his fardens fardens no nor yet is our fardens our fardens no nor yet is quarter a banking away like smoke at tellson's and a cocking their medical eyes at that tradesman on the sly a going in and going out to their own carriages <laughs> equally like smoke if not more so well that'd be imposing too on tellson's for you cannot sass the goose and not the gander and here's mrs cruncher or leastways was in the old england times and would be to-morrow if calls given a flopping again the business to that degree as is ruinating stark ruinating whereas them medical doctors wives don't flop catch em at it or if they flop their floppings goes in favour of more patients and how can you rightly have one without t'other then what with undertakers and what with parish clerks and what with sextons and what with private watchmen all avaricious and all in it a man wouldn't get much by it even if it was so and what little a man did get would never prosper with him mr lorry he'd never have no good of it he'd want all along to be out the line if he could see his way out being once in even if it was so ugh cried mr lorry rather relenting nevertheless i am shocked at the sight of you now what i would humbly offer to you sir pursued mr cruncher even if it was so which i don't say it is don't prevaricate said mr lorry now nah, we're not sir returned mr cruncher as if nothing were further from his thoughts or practice which i don't say it is what i would humbly offer to you sir would be this upon that there stall at that there bar sets that there boy of mine brought up and growed up to be a man what will errand you message you general light job you till your eels is where your head is if such should be your wishes if it was so which i still don't say it is for i will not prevaricate to you sir let that there boy keep his father's place 
and take care of his mother. Don't blow upon that boy's father. Do not do it, sir, and let that father go into the line of the regular digging and make amends for what he would have undone, if it was so, by digging of them in with a will and with convictions respecting the future keeping of them safe. That, Mr. Lorry, said Mr. Cruncher, wiping his forehead with his arm, as an announcement that he had arrived at the peroration of his discourse, is what I would respectfully offer to you, sir. A man don't see all this here going on dreadful round him in the way of subjects with our heads, dear me, plentiful enough for to bring the price down to Portridge, and hardly that, without having his serious thoughts of things and these here would be mine if it was so entreating of you for to bear in mind that what i said just now i up and said in the good cause where i might have kept it back that at least is true said mr lorry say no more now it may be that i shall yet stand your friend if you deserve it and repent in action not in words i want no more words mr cruncher knuckled his forehead as sydney carton and the spy returned from the dark room adieu mr barsad said the former our arrangement thus made you have nothing to fear from me he sat down in a chair on the hearth over against mr lorry when they were alone mr lorry asked him what he had done not much if it shall go ill with the prisoner i have ensured access to him once mr lorry's countenance fell it is all i could do said carton to propose too much would be to put this man's head under the axe and as he himself said nothing worse could happen to him if he were denounced it was obviously the weakness of the position there is no help for it but access to him said mr lorry if it should go ill before the tribunal will not save him i never said it would Mr. Lorry's eyes gradually sought the fire. His sympathy with his darling and the heavy disappointment of his second arrest gradually weakened them. He was an old man now, overborne with anxiety of late, and his tears fell. "'You're a good man and a true friend,' said Carton, in an altered voice. "'Forgive me if I notice that you are affected. I could not see my father weep and slip by careless, and I could not respect your sorrow more if you were my father. You are free from that misfortune, however.' Though he said the last words with a slip into his usual manner, there was a true feeling and respect, both in his tone and in his touch, that Mr. Lorry, who had never seen the better side of him, was wholly unprepared for. He gave him his hand, and Carton gently pressed it. "'To return to poor Darnay,' said Carton, "'don't tell her of this interview or this arrangement. It would not enable her to go to see him. She might think it was contrived, in case of the worst, to convey to him the means of anticipating the sentence.' Mr. Lorry had not thought of that, and he looked quickly at Carton to see if it were in his mind. It seemed to be. He returned the look, and evidently understood it. "'She might think a thousand things,' Carton said, and any of them would only add to her trouble. Don't speak of me to her. As I said to you when I first came, I had better not see her. I can put my hand out to do any little helpful work for her that my hand can find to do without that. You are going to her, I hope? She must be very desolate to-night. I am going now, directly. I am glad of that. She has such a strong attachment to you and reliance on you. How does she look? 
anxious and unhappy, but very beautiful. Ah! It was a long, grieving sound, like a sigh, almost like a sob. It attracted Mr. Lorry's eyes to Carton's face, which was turned to the fire. A light, or a shade, the old gentleman could not have said which, passed from it as swiftly as a changeful sweep over a hillside on a wild, bright day. And he lifted his foot to put back one of the little flaming logs, which was tumbling forward. He wore the white riding-coat and top-boots, then in vogue, and the light of the fire touching their light surfaces made him look very pale, with his long brown hair, all untrimmed, hanging loose about him. His indifference to fire was sufficiently remarkable to elicit a word of remonstrance from Mr. Lorry. His boot was still upon the hot embers of the flaming log, when it had broken under the weight of his foot. "'I forgot it,' he said." Mr. Lorry's eyes were again attracted to his face. Taking note of the wasted air which clouded the naturally handsome features, and having the expression of prisoners' faces fresh in his mind, he was strongly reminded of that expression. "'And your duties here have drawn to an end, sir?' said Carton, turning to him. "'Yes.' as i was telling you last night when lucy came in so unexpectedly i have at length done all that i can do here i hope to have left them in perfect safety and then to have quitted paris i have my leave to pass i was ready to go they were both silent yours is a long life to look back upon sir said carton wistfully i am in my seventy-eighth year you have been useful all your life, steadily and constantly occupied, trusted, respected, and looked up to. I have been a man of business ever since I have been a man. Indeed, I may say that I was a man of business when a boy. See what a place you fill at seventy-eight. How many people will miss you when you leave it empty? A solitary old bachelor, answered Mr. Lorry, shaking his head. There is nobody to weep for me. "'How can you say that? Wouldn't she weep for you? Wouldn't her child?' "'Yes, yes, thank God. I didn't quite mean what I said.' "'It is a thing to thank God for, is it not?' "'Surely, surely.' "'If you could say with truth to your own solitary heart to-night, "'I have secured to myself the love and attachment, "'the gratitude or respect of no human creature, "'I have won myself a tender place in no regard, "'I have done nothing good or serviceable to be remembered by. "'Your seventy-eight years would be seventy-eight heavy curses, would they not?' "'You say truly, Mr. Carton. "'I think they would be.' Sidney turned his eyes again upon the fire, and, after a silence of a few moments, said, "'I should like to ask you, does your childhood seem far off? Do the days when you sat at your mother's knee seem days of very long ago?' Responding to his softened manner, Mr. Lorry answered, Twenty years back, yes. At this time of my life, no.' for, as I draw closer and closer to the end, I travel in the circle, nearer and nearer to the beginning. It seems to be one of the kind smoothings and preparing of the way. My heart is touched now by many remembrances that had long fallen asleep of my pretty young mother and I so old, 
and by many associations of the days when what we called the world was not so real with me, and my faults were not confirmed in me. "'I understand the feeling,' exclaimed Carton with a bright flush. "'And you are the better for it?' "'I hope so.' Carton terminated the conversation here, by rising to help him on with his outer coat. "'But you,' said Mr. Lorry, reverting to the theme, "'you are young.' Yes, said Carton, I am not old, but my young way was never the way to age. Enough of me. And of me, I am sure, said Mr. Lorry. Are you going out? I'll walk with you to her gate. You know my vagabond and restless habits. If I should prowl about the streets a long time, don't be uneasy. I shall reappear in the morning. You go to the court to-morrow? Yes, unhappily. I shall be there, but only as one of the crowd. My spy will find a place for me. Take my arm, sir. Mr. Lorry did so, and they went downstairs and out into the streets. A few minutes brought them to Mr. Lorry's destination. Carton left him there, but lingered at a little distance, and turned back to the gate again when it was shut, and touched it. He had heard of her going to the prison every day. She came out here, he said, looking about him turned this way, must have trod on these stones often. Let me follow in her steps. It was ten o'clock at night when he stood before the prison of La Force, where she had stood hundreds of times. A little wood-sawyer, having closed his shop, was smoking his pipe at his shop door. "'Good night, citizen,' said Sidney Carton, pausing in going by, for the man eyed him inquisitively. "'Good night, citizen.' How goes the Republic? You mean the guillotine? Not ill. Sixty-three to-day. We shall mount to a hundred soon. Samson and his men complain sometimes of being exhausted. <laughs> he is so droll, that Samson, such a barber. Do you often go to see him? Shave? Always. Every day. What a barber. You have seen him at work? Never. Never. Go and see him when he has a good Batch. Figure this to yourself, citizen. He shaved the sixty-three to-day in less than two pipes. Less than two pipes. Word of honour. As the grinning little man held up the pipe he was smoking to explain how he timed the executioner, Carton was so sensible of a rising desire to strike the life out of him that he turned away. But you are not English, said the wood sawyer, though you wear English dress. "'Yes,' said Carton, pausing again and answering over his shoulder. "'You speak like a Frenchman. I'm an old student here. Aha, a perfect Frenchman. Good night, Englishman. Good night, citizen.' "'But go and see that droll dog,' the little man persisted, calling after him, "'and take a pipe with you.' Sidney had not gone far out of sight when he stopped in the middle of the street under a glimmering lamp and wrote with his pencil on a scrap of paper. Then, traversing with the decided step of one who remembered the way well, several dark and dirty streets, much dirtier than usual, for the best public thoroughfares remained uncleansed in those times of terror. He stopped at a chemist's shop, which the owner was closing with his own hands. A small, dim, crooked shop, kept in a tortuous uphill thoroughfare by a small, dim, crooked man. 
Giving this citizen, too, good-night, as he confronted him at his counter, he laid the scrap of paper before him. Phew! the chemist whistled softly as he read it. Hi! 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 Sidney Carton took no heed, and the chemist said, For you, citizen? For me. You'll be careful to keep them separate, citizen. You know the consequence of mixing them? Perfectly. Certain small packets were made and given to him. He put them one by one in the breast of his inner coat, counted out the money for them, and deliberately left the shop. There is nothing more to do, said he, glancing upward at the moon, until to-morrow. I can't sleep. It was not a reckless manner, the manner in which he said these words aloud under the fast-sailing clouds, nor was it more expressive of negligence than defiance. It was the settled manner of a tired man who had wandered and struggled and got lost, but who at length struck into his road and saw its end. Long ago, when he had been famous among his earliest competitors as a youth of great promise, he had followed his father to the grave. His mother had died years before. These solemn words, which had been read at his father's grave, arose in his mind as he went down the dark streets, among the heavy shadows, with the moon and the clouds sailing on high above him. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. In a city dominated by the axe, alone at night, with natural sorrow rising in him for the sixty-three who had been that day put to death, and for to-morrow's victims then awaiting their doom in the prisons, and still of to-morrow's and to-morrow's, the chain of association that brought the words home like a rusty old ship's anchor from the deep might have been easily found. He did not seek it, but repeated them, and went on. With a solemn interest in the lighted windows where the people were going to rest, forgetful through a few calm hours of the horrors surrounding them, in the towers of the churches where no prayers were said, for the popular revulsion had even travelled that length of self-destruction from years of priestly impostors, plunderers, and profligates, in the distant burial-places, reserved as they wrote upon the gates for eternal sleep, in the abounding jails, and in the streets along which the sixties rolled to a death which had become so common and material that no sorrowful story of a haunting spirit ever arose among the people out of all the working of the guillotine, with a solemn interest in the whole life and death of the city settling down to its short nightly pause in fury. Sidney Carton crossed the Seine again for the lighter streets. Few coaches were abroad, for riders in coaches were liable to be suspected, and gentility hid its head in red nightcaps, and put on heavy shoes, and trudged. But the theatres were all well filled, and the people poured cheerfully out as he passed, and went chatting home. At one of the theatre doors there was a little girl with a mother, looking for a way across the street through the mud. 
He carried the child over, and before the timid arm was loose from his neck, asked her for a kiss. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now that the streets were quiet, and the night wore on, the words were in the echoes of his feet, and were in the air, perfectly calm and steady, he sometimes repeated them to himself as he walked, but he heard them always. The night wore out, and as he stood upon the bridge, listening to the water as it splashed the river walls of the island of Paris, where the picturesque confusion of houses and cathedral shone bright in the light of the moon, the day came coldly, looking like a dead face out of the sky. Then the night, with the moon and the stars, turned pale and died, and for a little while it seemed as if creation were delivered over to death's dominion. But the glorious sun, rising, seemed to strike those words, that burden of the night straight and warm to his heart in its long, bright rays, and looking along them with reverently shaded eyes, a bridge of light appeared to span the air between him and the sun, while the river sparkled under it. The strong tide, so swift, so deep and certain, was like a congenial friend in the morning stillness. He walked by the stream, far from the houses, and in the light and warmth of the sun fell asleep on the bank. When he awoke and was afoot again, he lingered there yet a little longer, watching an eddy that turned and turned purposeless until the stream absorbed it and carried it on to the sea. Like me, a trading-boat, with a sail of the softened colour of a dead leaf, then glided into his view, floated by him, and died away. As its silent track in the water disappeared, the prayer that had broken up out of his heart for a merciful consideration of all his poor blindnesses and errors ended in the words, I am the resurrection and the life. Mr. Lorry was already out when he got back, and it was easy to surmise where the good old man was gone. Sidney Carton drank nothing but a little coffee, ate some bread, and, having washed and changed to refresh himself, went out to the place of trial. The court was all astir and a buzz when the black sheep, whom many fell away from in dread, pressed him into an obscure corner among the crowd. Mr. Lorry was there, and Dr. Manette was there. She was there, sitting beside her father. When her husband was brought in, she turned a look upon him, so sustaining, so encouraging, so full of admiring love and pitying tenderness, yet so courageous for his sake, that it called the healthy blood into his face, brightened his glance, and animated his heart. If there had been any eyes to notice the influence of her look on Sidney Carton, it would have been seen to be the same influence exactly. 
before that unjust tribunal there was little or no order of procedure ensuring to any accused person any reasonable hearing there could have been no such revolution if all laws forms and ceremonies had not first been so monstrously abused that the suicidal vengeance of the revolution was to scatter them all to the winds every eye was turned to the jury the same determined patriots and good republicans as yesterday and the day before and to-morrow and the day after eager and prominent among them one man with a craving face and his fingers perpetually hovering about his lips whose appearance gave great satisfaction to the spectators a life-thirsting cannibal-looking bloody-minded juryman the jacques three of saint Antoine the whole jury as a jury of dogs impanelled to try the deer every eye then turned to the five judges and the public prosecutor no favourable leaning in that quarter to-day a fell uncompromising murderous business meaning there every eye then sought some other eye in the crowd and gleamed at it approvingly and heads nodded at one another before bending forward with a strained attention Charles Evremond, called Darnay, released yesterday, reaccused and retaken yesterday, indictment delivered to him last night, suspected and denounced enemy of the Republic, aristocrat, one of a family of tyrants, one of a race prescribed, for that they had used their abolished privileges to the infamous oppression of the people. Charles Evremond, called Darnay, in right of such prescription, absolutely dead in law. To this effect, in as few or fewer words, the public prosecutor. The president asked, was the accused openly denounced, or secretly? Openly president? By whom? Three voices, Ernest Defarge, wine vendor of Saint-Antoine. Good. Therese Defarge, his wife. Good. Alexandre Manette, physician. A great uproar took place in the court, and in the midst of it Dr. Manette was seen pale and trembling, standing where he had been seated. "'President, I indignantly protest to you that this is a forgery and a fraud. You know the accused to be the husband of my daughter, my daughter, and those dear to her are far dearer to me than my life.' who and where is the false conspirator who says that i denounce the husband of my child citizen manette be tranquil to fail in submission to the authority of the tribunal would be to put yourself out of law as to what is dearer to you than life nothing can be so dear to a good citizen as the republic loud acclamations hailed this rebuke the president rang his bell and with warmth resumed if the republic should demand of you the sacrifice of your child herself you would have no duty but to sacrifice her listen to what is to follow in the meanwhile be silent frantic acclamations were again raised dr manette sat down with his eyes looking around and his lips trembling his daughter drew closer to him the craving man on the jury rubbed his hands together and restored the usual hand to his mouth 
Defarge was produced, when the court was quiet enough to admit of his being heard, and rapidly expounded the story of the imprisonment, and of his having been a mere boy in the doctor's service, and of the release, and of the state of the prisoner when released and delivered to him. This short examination followed, for the court was quick with its work. "'You did good service at the taking of the Bastille, citizen?' "'I believe so.' Here an excited woman screeched from the crowd. "'You were one of the best patriots there! Why not say so? You were a cannoneer that day there, and you were among the first to enter the accursed fortress when it fell! Patriots, I speak the truth!' It was the vengeance who, amidst the warm commendations of the audience, thus assisted the proceedings. The president rang his bell, but the vengeance, warming with encouragement, shrieked, I defy that bell! wherein she was likewise much commended. Inform the tribunal of what you did that day within the Bastille, citizen. I knew, said Defarge, looking down at his wife, who stood at the bottom of the steps on which he was raised, looking steadily up at him, I knew that prisoner of whom I speak had been confined in a cell known as 105 North Tower. I knew it from himself. He knew himself by no other name than 105 North Tower, when he made shoes under my care. As I served my gun that day, I resolve, when the place shall fall, to examine that cell. It falls. I mount to the cell with a fellow citizen who is one of the jury, directed by a jailer. I examine it very closely. In a hole in the chimney where a stone has been worked out and replaced, I find a written paper. This is that written paper. I have made it my business to examine some specimens of the writing of Dr. Manette. This is the writing of Dr. Manette. I confide this paper in the writing of Dr. Manette to the hands of the President. Let it be read. In a dead silence and stillness, the prisoner under trial looking lovingly at his wife, his wife only looking from him to look with solicitude at her father, Dr. Manette keeping his eyes fixed on the reader, Madame Defarge never taking hers from the prisoner, Defarge never taking his from his feasting wife, and all the other eyes there intent upon the doctor, who saw none of them. The paper was read as follows. End of Book 3, Chapter 9. Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com. Book 3, Chapter 10 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 10. The Substance of the Shadow I, Alexandre Manette, unfortunate physician, native of Beauvais, and afterwards resident in Paris, write this melancholy paper in my doleful cell in the Bastille, during the last month of the year 1767. I write it at stolen intervals, under every difficulty. I design to secrete it into the wall of the chimney, where I have slowly and laboriously made a place of concealment for it.
some pitying hand may find it there when i and my sorrows are dust these words are formed by the rusty iron point with which i write with difficulty in scrapings of soot and charcoal from the chimney mixed with blood in the last month of the tenth year of my captivity hope has quite departed from my breast i know from terrible warnings i have noted in myself that my reason will not long remain unimpaired but i solemnly declare that i am at this time in the possession of my right mind that my memory is exact and circumstantial and that i write the truth as i shall answer for these my last recorded words whether they be ever read by men or not at the eternal judgment seat one cloudy moonlight night in the third week of december i think the twenty-second of the month in the year seventeen fifty seven i was walking on a retired part of the quay by the seine for the refreshment of the frosty air at an hour's distance from my place of residence in the street of the school of medicine when a carriage came along behind me driven very fast as i stood aside to let that carriage pass apprehensive that it might otherwise run me down a head was put out at the window and a voice called to the driver to stop the carriage stopped as soon as the driver could rein in his horses and the same voice called to me by my name i answered the carriage was then so far in advance of me that two gentlemen had time to open the door and alight before i came up with it I observed that they were both wrapped in cloaks and appeared to conceal themselves. As they stood side by side near the carriage door, I also observed that they both looked of about my own age, or rather younger, and that they were greatly alike in stature, manner, voice, and, as far as I could see, face too. "'You are Dr. Manette?' said one. "'I am.' Dr. Manette, formerly of Beauvais, said the other, the young physician, originally an expert surgeon, who, within the last year or two, has made a rising reputation in Paris. Gentlemen, I returned, I am that Dr. Manette of whom you speak so graciously. We have been to your residence, said the first, and not being so fortunate as to find you there, and being informed that you were probably walking in this direction, we followed, in the hope of overtaking you. Were you pleased to enter the carriage? The manner of both was imperious, and they both moved, as these words were spoken, so as to place me between themselves and the carriage door. They were armed, I was not. "'Gentlemen,' said I, "'pardon me, but I usually inquire who does me the honour to seek my assistance, and what is the nature of the case to which I am summoned?' The reply to this was made by him who had spoken second. "'Doctor, your clients are people of condition. As to the nature of the case, our confidence in your skill assures us that you will ascertain it for yourself better than we can describe it. Enough. Will you please to enter the carriage?' i could do nothing but comply and i entered it in silence they both entered after me the last springing in after putting up the steps the carriage turned about and drove on at its former speed 
I repeat this conversation exactly as it occurred. I have no doubt that it is word for word the same. I describe everything exactly as it took place, constraining my mind not to wander from the task. Where I made the broken marks that follow here, I leave off for the time, and put my paper in its hiding place. Broken Mark the carriage left the streets behind passed the north barrier and emerged upon the country road at two-thirds of a league from the barrier i did not estimate the distance at that time but afterwards when i traversed it it struck out of the main avenue and presently stopped at a solitary house we all three alighted and walked by a damp soft footpath in a garden where a neglected fountain had overflowed to the door of the house it was not opened immediately in answer to the ringing of the bell and one of my two conductors struck the man who opened it with his heavy riding-glove across the face there was nothing in this action to attract my particular attention for i had seen common people struck more commonly than dogs but the other of the two being angry likewise struck the man in like manner with his arm the look and bearing of the brothers were then so exactly alike that i then first perceived them to be twin brothers from the time of our alighting at the outer gate which we found locked and which one of the brothers had opened to admit us and had relocked i had heard cries proceeding from an upper chamber i was conducted to this chamber straight the cries growing louder as we ascended the stairs and i found a patient in a high fever of the brain lying on a bed the patient was a woman of great beauty and young assuredly not much past twenty her hair was torn and ragged and her arms were bound to her sides with sashes and handkerchiefs i noticed that these bonds were all portions of a gentleman's dress on one of them which was a fringed scarf for a dress of ceremony i saw the armorial bearings of a noble and the letter e i saw this within the first minute of my contemplation of the patient for in her restless strivings she had turned over on her face on the edge of the bed had drawn the end of the scarf into her mouth and was in danger of suffocation my first act was to put out my hand to relieve her breathing and in moving the scarf aside the embroidery in the corner caught my sight i turned her gently over placed my hands upon her breast to calm her and keep her down and looked into her face her eyes were dilated and wild and she constantly uttered piercing shrieks and repeated the words my husband my father and my brother and then counted up to twelve and said hush for an instant and no more she would pause to listen and then the piercing shrieks would begin again and she would repeat the cry my husband my father and my brother and would count up to twelve and say hush there was no variation in the order or the manner there was no cessation but the regular moment's pause in the utterance of these sounds how long i asked has this lasted to distinguish the brothers i will call them the elder and the younger by the elder i mean him who exercised the most authority it was the elder who replied since about this hour last night she has a husband a father and a brother a brother i do not address her brother he answered with great contempt 
No. She has some recent association with the number twelve? The younger brother impatiently rejoined, With twelve o'clock? See, gentlemen, said I, still keeping my hands upon her breast, how useless I am, as you have brought me. If I had known what I was coming to see, I could have come provided. As it is, time must be lost. There are no medicines to be obtained in this lonely place. The elder brother looked to the younger, who said haughtily, There is a case of medicines here, and brought it from a closet, and put it on the table. Broken Mark I opened some of the bottles, smelt them, and put the stoppers to my lips. If I had wanted to use anything save narcotic medicines that were poisons in themselves, I would not have administered any of those. "'Do you doubt them?' asked the younger brother. "'You see, monsieur, I am going to use them,' I replied, and said no more. I made the patient swallow with great difficulty, and after many efforts, the dose that I desired to give. As I intended to repeat it after a while, and as it was necessary to watch its influence, I then sat down by the side of the bed. There was a timid and suppressed woman in attendance, wife of the man downstairs, who had retreated into a corner. The house was damp and decayed, indifferently furnished, evidently recently occupied and temporarily used. Some thick old hangings had been nailed up before the windows to deaden the sound of the shrieks. They continued to be uttered in their regular succession, with the cry, My husband, my father, and my brother, the counting up to twelve, and hush! The frenzy was so violent that I had not unfastened the bandages restraining the arms. But I had looked to them to see that they were not painful. The only spark of encouragement in the case was that my hand upon the sufferer's breast had this much soothing influence that for minutes at a time it tranquillized the figure. It had no effect upon the cries. No pendulum could be more regular. For the reason that my hand had this effect, I assume, I had sat by the side of the bed for half an hour, with the two brothers looking on, before the elder said, "'There is another patient.' I was startled, and asked, "'Is it a pressing case?' "'You had better see,' he carelessly answered, and took up a light. Broken Mark the other patient lay in a back room across a second staircase, which was a species of loft over a stable. There was a low plastered ceiling to a part of it. The rest was open to the ridge of the tiled roof, and there were beams across. Hay and straw were stored in that portion of the place, faggots for firing, and a heap of apples in sand. I had to pass through that part to get at the other. My memory is circumstantial and unshaken. I try it with these details, and I see them all, in this my cell in the Bastille, near the close of the tenth year of my captivity, as I saw them all that night. On some hay on the ground, with a cushion thrown under his head, lay a handsome peasant boy, a boy of not more than seventeen at the most. He lay on his back, with his teeth set, his right hand clenched on his breast, and his glaring eyes looking straight upward. I could not see where his wound was, as I kneeled on one knee over him, but I could see that he was dying of a wound from a sharp point. 
"'I am a doctor, my poor fellow,' said I. "'Let me examine it.' "'I do not want it examined,' he answered. "'Let it be.' It was under his hand, and I soothed him to let me move his hand away. The wound was a sword-thrust, received from twenty to twenty-four hours before, but no skill could have saved him if it had been looked to without delay. He was then dying fast. As I turned my eyes to the elder brother, I saw him looking down at this handsome boy whose life was ebbing out, as if he were a wounded bird, or hare, or rabbit, not at all as if he were a fellow-creature. "'How has this been done, monsieur?' said I. "'Craze young common dog, a serf, forced my brother to draw upon him, and has fallen by my brother's sword like a gentleman.' There was no touch of pity, sorrow, or kindred humanity in this answer. The speaker seemed to acknowledge that it was inconvenient to have that different order of creature dying there, and that it would have been better if he had died in the usual obscure routine of his vermin kind. He was quite incapable of any compassionate feeling about the boy, or about his fate. The boy's eyes had slowly moved to him as he had spoken, and they now slowly moved to me. "'Doctor, they are very proud, these nobles, but we common dogs are proud too sometimes. They plunder us, outrage us, beat us, kill us, but we have a little pride left sometimes. She, have you seen her, doctor?' The shrieks and the cries were audible there, though subdued by the distance. He referred to them as if she were lying in our presence. I said, "'I have seen her.' She is my sister, doctor. They have their shameful rights, these nobles, in the modesty and virtue of our sisters, many years. But we have had good girls among us. I know it, and have heard my father say so. She was a good girl. She was betrothed to a good young man, too, a tenant of his. We were all tenants of his, that man who stands there, the other of his brother, the worst of a bad race. It was with the greatest difficulty that the boy gathered bodily force to speak, but his spirit spoke with a dreadful emphasis. We oh, were so robbed by that man who stands there as all we common dogs are by those superior beings, taxed by him without mercy, obliged to work for him without pay, obliged to grind our corn at his mill, obliged to feed scores of his tame birds on our wretched crops, and forbidden for our lives to keep a single tame bird of our own, pillaged and plundered to that degree that when we chanced to have a bit of meat we ate it in fear with the door barred and the shutters closed that his people should not see it and take it from us i say we were so robbed and hunted and were made so poor that her father told us it was a dreadful thing to bring a child into the world and that what we should most pray for was that our women might be barren and our miserable race die out I had never before seen the sense of being oppressed, bursting forth like a fire. I had supposed that it must be latent in the people somewhere, but I had never seen it break out until I saw it in the dying boy. 
Nevertheless, doctor, my sister married. He was ailing at that time, poor fellow, and she married her lover, that she might tend and comfort him in our cottage, our dog-hut, as that man would call it. She had not been married many weeks, though when that man's brother uh, saw her, and admired her, and asked that man to lend her to him, for what are husbands among us? he was willing enough but my sister was good and virtuous and hated his brother with a hatred as strong as mine what did the two then to persuade her husband to use his influence with her to make her willing the boy's eyes which had been fixed on mine slowly turned to the looker-on and i saw in the two faces that all he said was true the two opposing kinds of pride confronting one another i can see even in this bastille the gentleman's all negligent indifference the peasants all trodden down sentiment and passionate revenge you know doctor that it is among the rights of these nobles to harness us common dogs to carts and drive us they so harnessed him and drove him you know that it is among their rights to keep us in their grounds all night quieting the frogs in order that their noble sleep may not be disturbed they kept him out in the unwholesome mists at night and ordered him back into his harness in the day but he was not persuaded no taken out of harness one day at noon to feed if he could find food he sobbed twelve times once for every stroke of the bell and died on her bosom nothing human could have held life in the boy but his determination to tell all that was wrong he forced back the gathering shadows of death as he forced his clenched right hand to remain clenched and to cover his wound then with that man's permission and even with his aid his brother took her away in spite of what i know she must have told his brother and what that is will not be long unknown to you doctor if it is now his brother took her away for his pleasure and diversion for a little while i saw her pass me on the road when i took the tidings home our father's heart burst he never spoke one of the words that filled it i took my young sister for i have another to a place beyond the reach of this man and where at least she will never be his vassal then i tracked the brother here and last night climbed in a common dog but sword in hand where is the loft window it was somewhere here the room was darkening to his sight the world was narrowing around him i glanced about me and saw that the hay and straw were trampled over the floor as if there had been a struggle she heard me and ran in i told her not to come near us till he was dead he came in and first tossed me some pieces of money then struck at me with a whip but i though a common dog so struck at him as to make him draw let him break into as many pieces as he will the sword that he stained with my common blood he drew to defend himself thrust at me with all his skill for his life 
my glance had fallen but a few moments before on the fragments of a broken sword lying among the hay that weapon was a gentleman's in another place lay an old sword that seemed to have been a soldier's now lift me up doctor lift me up where is he he is not here i said supporting the boy and thinking that he referred to the brother he proud as these nobles are he is afraid to see me where is the man who was here turn my face to him i did so raising the boy's head against my knee but invested for the moment with extraordinary power he raised himself completely obliging me to rise too or i could not have still supported him marquis said the boy turned to him with his eyes open wide and his right hand raised in the days when all these things are to be answered for i summon you and yours to the last of your bad race to answer for them i mark this cross of blood upon you as a sign that i do it in the days when all these things are to be answered for i summon your brother the the worst of the bad race to answer for them separately i mark this cross of blood upon him as a sign that i do it twice he put his hand to the wound in his breast and with his forefinger drew a cross in the air he stood for an instant with the finger yet raised and as it dropped he dropped with it and i laid him down dead broken mark when i returned to the bedside of the young woman i found her raving in precisely the same order of continuity i knew that this might last for many hours and that it would probably end in the silence of the grave i repeated the medicines i had given her and i sat at the side of the bed until the night was far advanced she never abated the piercing quality of her shrieks never stumbled in the distinctness or the order of her words they were always my husband my father and my brother one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve hush this lasted twenty-six hours from the time when I first saw her. I had come and gone twice, and was again sitting by her, when she began to falter. I did what little could be done to assist that opportunity, and by and by she sank into a lethargy, and lay like the dead. It was as if the wind and rain had lulled at last, after a long and fearful storm. I released her arms, and called the woman to assist me to compose her figure and the dress she had torn. It was then that I knew her condition to be that of one in whom the first expectations of being a mother have arisen, and it was then that I lost the little hope I had had of her. Is she dead? asked the marquis whom i will still describe as the elder brother coming booted into the room from his horse not dead said i but like to die what strength there is in these common bodies he said looking down at her with some curiosity there is prodigious strength i answered him in sorrow and despair 
He first laughed at my words, and then frowned at them. He moved a chair with his foot near to mine, ordered the woman away, and said in a subdued voice, Doctor, finding my brother in this difficulty with these hinds, I recommended that your aid should be invited. Your reputation is high, and as a young man with your fortune to make, you are probably mindful of your interest. The things that you see here are things to be seen and not spoken of. I listened to the patient's breathing and avoided answering. Do you honour me with your attention, doctor? Monsieur, said I, in my profession the communications of patients are always received in confidence. I was guarded in my answer, for I was troubled in my mind with what I had heard and seen. Her breathing was so difficult to trace that I carefully tried the pulse and the heart. There was life and no more. Looking round as I resumed my seat, I found both the brothers intent upon me broken mark. I write with so much difficulty, the cold is so severe, I am so fearful of being detected and consigned to an underground cell and total darkness, that I must abridge this narrative. There is no confusion or failure in my memory. It can recall and could detail every word that was ever spoken between me and those brothers. She lingered for a week. Towards the last I could understand some few syllables that she said to me by placing my ear close to her lips. She asked me where she was, and I told her, who I was, and I told her. It was in vain that I asked her for her family name. She faintly shook her head upon the pillow, and kept her secret as the boy had done. I had no opportunity of asking her any question until I had told the brothers she was sinking fast and could not live another day. Until then, though no one was ever presented to her consciousness save the woman and myself, one or other of them had always jealously sat behind the curtain at the head of the bed when I was there. But when it came to that, they seemed careless what communication I might hold with her, as if the thought passed through my mind, I were dying. Too. I always observed that their pride bitterly resented the younger brothers, as I call him, having crossed swords with a peasant, and that peasant a boy. The only consideration that appeared to affect the mind of either of them was the consideration that this was highly degrading to the family, and was ridiculous. As often as I caught the younger brother's eyes, their expression reminded me that he disliked me deeply for knowing what I knew from the boy. He was smoother and more polite to me than the elder, but I saw this. I also saw that I was an encumbrance in the mind of the elder, too. My patient died two hours before midnight, at a time by my watch, answering almost to the minute when I had first seen her. I was alone with her, when her forlorn young head drooped gently on one side, and all her earthly wrongs and sorrows ended. The brothers were waiting in a room downstairs, impatient to ride away. I had heard them, alone at the bedside, striking their boots with their riding-whips, and loitering up and down. "'At last she is dead,' said the elder, when I went in. "'She is dead,' said I. 
I congratulate you, my brother, were his words as he turned around. He had before offered me money, which I had postponed taking. He now gave me a rouleau of gold. I took it from his hand, but laid it on the table. I had considered the question, and had resolved to accept nothing. "'Pray excuse me,' said I. "'Under the circumstances, no.' They exchanged looks, but bent their heads to me as I bent mine to them, and we parted without another word on either side. Broken Mark I am weary, 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 worn down by misery. I cannot read what I have written with this gaunt hand. Early in the morning the rouleau of gold was left at my door in a little box with my name on the outside. From the first I had anxiously considered what I ought to do. I decided, that day, to write privately to the minister, stating the nature of the two cases to which I had been summoned, and the place to which I had gone, in effect stating all the circumstances. I knew what court influence was, and what the immunity of the nobles were, and I expected that the matter would never be heard of but i wished to relieve my own mind i had kept the matter a profound secret even from my wife and this too i resolved to state in my letter i had no apprehension whatever of my real danger but i was conscious that there might be danger for others if others were compromised by possessing the knowledge that i possessed I was much engaged that day, and could not complete my letter that night. I rose long before my usual time next morning to finish it. It was the last day of the year. The letter was lying before me, just completed, when I was told that a lady waited, who wished to see me. Broken Mark I am growing more and more unequal to the task I have set myself. It is so cold, so dark, my senses are so benumbed, and the gloom upon me is so dreadful. The lady was young, engaging, and handsome, but not marked for long life. She was in great agitation. She presented herself to me as the wife of the Marquis Saint-Evremond. I connected the title by which the boy had addressed the elder brother with the initial letter embroidered on the scarf, and had no difficulty in arriving at the conclusion that I had seen that nobleman very lately. My memory is still accurate, but I cannot write the words of our conversation. I suspect that I am watched more closely than I was, and I know not at what times I may be watched. She had in part suspected, and in part discovered, the main fact of the cruel story of her husband's share in it and my being resorted to. She did not know that the girl was dead. Her hope had been, she said, in great distress, to show her in secret a woman's sympathy. Her hope had been to avert the wrath of heaven from a house that had long been hateful to the suffering many. She had reasons for believing that there was a young sister living, and her greatest desire was to help that sister. I could tell her nothing but that there was such a sister. Beyond that I knew nothing. Her inducement to come to me, relying on my confidence, had been the hope that I could tell her the name and place of abode, whereas to this wretched hour I am ignorant of both. Broken Mark 
These scraps of paper fail me. One was taken from me with a warning yesterday. I must finish my record to-day. She was a good, compassionate lady, and not happy in her marriage. How could she be? The brother distrusted and disliked her, and his influence was all opposed to her. She stood in dread of him, and in dread of her husband, too. When I handed her down to the door, there was a child, a pretty boy from two to three years old, in her carriage. "'For his sake, doctor,' she said, pointing to him in tears, i would do all i can to make what poor amends i can he will never prosper in his inheritance otherwise i have a presentiment that if no other innocent atonement is made for this it will one day be required of him what i have left to call my own it is little beyond the worth of a few jewels i will make it the first charge of his life to bestow with the compassion and lamenting of his dead mother on this injured family family if the sister can be discovered she kissed the boy and said caressing him it is for thine own dear sake thou wilt be faithful little charles the child answered her bravely yes i kissed her hand and she took him in her arms and went away caressing him i never saw her more as she had mentioned her husband's name in the faith that i knew it i added no mention of it to my letter i sealed my letter and not trusting it out of my own hands delivered it myself that day that night the last night of the year towards nine o'clock a man in a black dress rang at my gate demanding to see me and softly followed my servant ernest defarge a youth upstairs when my servant came into the room where i sat with my wife o oh, my wife beloved of my heart my fair young english wife we saw the man who was supposed to be at the gate standing silent behind him an urgent case in the rue saint honore he said it would not detain me he had a coach in waiting it brought me here it brought me to my grave when i was clear of the house a black muffler was drawn tightly over my mouth from behind and my arms were pinioned the two brothers crossed the road from a dark corner and identified me with a single gesture the marquis took from his pocket the letter i had written showed it me burnt it in the light of a lantern that was held and extinguished the ashes with his foot not a word was spoken i was brought here i was brought to my living grave if it had pleased god to put it in the hard heart of either of the brothers in all these frightful years to grant me any tidings of my dearest wife so much as to let me know by a word whether alive or dead i might have thought that he had not quite abandoned them but now i believe that the mark of the red cross is fatal to them and that they have no part in his mercies and them and their descendants to the last of their race i alexandre manette unhappy prisoner do this last night of the year seventeen sixty seven in my unbearable agony denounce to the times when all these things shall be answered for i denounce them to heaven and to earth 
A terrible sound arose when the reading of this document was done, a sound of craving, an eagerness, that had nothing articulate in it but blood. The narrative called up the most revengeful passions of the time, and there was not a head in the nation but must have dropped before it. Little need in presence of that tribunal and that auditory to show how the Defarges had not made the paper public with the other captured Bastille memorials born in procession, and had kept it, biding their time. Little need to show that this detested family name had long been anathematized by Saint-Antoine, and was wrought into the fatal register. The man never trod ground whose virtues and services would have sustained him in that place that day against such denunciation <laughs> and all the worse for the doomed man that the denouncer was a well-known citizen his own attached friend the father of his wife one of the frenzied aspirations of the populace was for imitations of the questionable public virtues of antiquity and for sacrifices and self-immolations on the people's altar therefore when the president said else had his own head quivered on his shoulders that the good physician of the republic would deserve better still of the republic by rooting out an obnoxious family of aristocrats and would doubtless feel a sacred glow and joy in making his daughter a widow and her child an orphan there was wild excitement patriotic fervour not a touch of human sympathy much influence around him has that doctor murmured madame defarge smiling to the vengeance save him now my doctor save him at every juryman's vote there was a roar, another, and another, roar and roar, unanimously voted, at heart and by descent an aristocrat, an enemy of the republic, a notorious oppressor of the people, back to the conciergerie and death within four and twenty hours. End of Book 3, Chapter 10, recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.